This is American Origin Stories. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. In this episode of American Origin Stories, we're going to explore the origin of the climate crisis, starting from way back at the beginning. The Earth is hard to fathom. This celestial body floating in the dark, four and a half billion years old, brought into the light by a fireball, 1.3 million times our size. We know how old this place is because scientists like to collect rocks. In northwestern Canada, they found some that are four billion years old. In Australia, they found some that are even older, 4.3 billion years old. During the six moon landings, scientists collected more rocks, core samples, pebbles, sand, and dust, and found some elements that were even older. An extraordinary discovery in this groping around in the dark, which is excavating the past. What we actually know about anything is very little. Most of us can't even remember our early childhoods in any detail. We don't know what's happening 10 feet behind our heads. Our scientific picture of history, while extraordinary to us with our humble powers of limited perception, is based on the fossil records, of which we only have a minuscule percentage, leaving life on Earth, even very recent Earth, pretty mysterious. Here's Britannica, quote, of the small proportion of organisms preserved as fossils, only a tiny fraction have been recovered and studied by paleontologists. In some cases, the secession of forms over time has been reconstructed in detail. One example is the evolution of the horse. The horse can be traced to an animal the size of a dog, having several toes on each foot and teeth appropriate for browsing. This strange animal is called the dawn horse, and it lived more than 50 million years ago. End quote on Britannica. So 50 million is about 1% of the age of Earth. Almost everything outside of our immediate purview can often be a bit surprising. Because we usually spend our lives on the land, we forget that most of our world is covered in water. And more than 80% of those oceans are totally unmapped, unobserved, unexplored. And yet these oceans drive our weather. They regulate our temperature. And they ultimately provide the underlying support of all living organisms. Water is considered the first of the eight necessary requirements for life that we can recognize with our five senses. And what about underneath the water and the land? The planet itself. There's obviously more to it than just the outer shell. Well, it's about 1,802 miles to the core. Using particle accelerators, x-rays, high-intensity lasers, diamonds, and iron atoms, scientists have come to the understanding that the inner core of our Earth is 6,000 degrees Celsius. That's about 10,800 degrees Fahrenheit. The center of our Earth appears to be hotter than the surface of the sun. 
The outer core is about 1,400 miles thick and composed of molten iron and nickel. The inner core is about 759 miles thick, and it's a solid ball of iron and nickel. And while it would be pretty interesting to drill down to the core and dig around and see what's in there, we have no technology that's even close to being able to go there. There's something called the Kola Superdeep Borehole, which was a scientific drilling project in the Pechensky district of the Soviet Union near the Russian border with Norway on the Kola Peninsula. That drilling project terminated in 1995 due to a lack of funds. They stopped drilling, I think, at around seven and a half miles because the temperature reached 356 degrees Fahrenheit and was expected to hit 572 degrees Fahrenheit at the target depth of 159 and a half miles, at which point the drill was going to stop working and the drill bit had no chance of survival. There are no known technologies that can get us even a fraction of the way down toward the iron core of our own world, where radioactive elements are decaying, along with heat left over from the formation of the planet four and a half billion years ago that creates all that heat. Huh. That's interesting, you might think. The core. What's that got to do with me? It's 1,800 miles away, straight down. Well, first of all, yeah, it's far, but it's not that far. The United States is about 2,600 miles wide, so it's not quite 70% the distance of the United States. It'd be like driving from New York to New Mexico, except instead of heading southwest, you would just go straight down. But there's a much bigger reason to care about the core. The Earth's magnetic field is generated by that mass of iron down there, meaning north, south, east, west, the compass by which we navigate ourselves, is determined by our Earth's core. As described by NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratories, quote, nearly all of Earth's geomagnetic field originates in the fluid outer core. Like boiling water on a stove, convective forces, which move heat from one place to another, usually through air or water, constantly churn the molten metals, which swirl in whirlpools driven by Earth's rotation. As this roiling mass of metal moves around, it generates electrical currents hundreds of miles wide and flowing at thousands of miles per hour, end quote. And besides determining our north and south, which, by the way, gradually shift and completely flip locations every 300,000 years or so, a lot of what happens on the surface of the Earth is affected by the magnetic field. Perhaps most important of all, it holds our atmosphere down on the surface and prevents it, this air that we need to breathe, from being completely blown away by solar wind. So how delicate is this little onion skin wrapping that we call our atmosphere? Well, it's very thin. It's only 60 miles to outer space. But we stop being able to breathe very well at about 8,000 feet. So of the 30% of our planet's surface that's not water, only about 70% of that land is actually habitable, and only a little shallow portion of it is breathable. So if we're being technical about it, our natural habitat is not really planet Earth, not inside it where it's nice and warm and filled with molten metals, but it's a tiny sliver of air at the bottom of a shallow ocean of oxygen on a very particular area of its outer shell. 
So how have we been doing with that little portion that we call home? Well, according to our world and data, quote, for much of human history, most of the world's land was wilderness. Forests, grasslands, and shrubbery dominated its landscapes. Over the last few centuries, this has changed dramatically. Wild habitats have been squeezed out by turning it into agricultural land. If we rewind a thousand years, it's estimated that only 4 million square kilometers, less than 4% of the world's ice-free and non-barren land area was used for farming. In the breakdown of global land area today, half of all habitable land is used for agriculture. This leaves only 37% for forests, 11% as shrubs and grasslands, 1% as freshwater coverage, and the remaining 1%, a much smaller area than many suspect, is built up urban areas, cities, towns, villages, roads, and other human infrastructure. The extensive land use has a major impact on the Earth's environment as it reduces wilderness and biodiversity, end quote. The population has been growing pretty dramatically recently as well. The curve looks like a hockey stick, going along, 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 and then bam, it spikes up. 5,000 years ago, humans were mainly congregated in Central America, the Mediterranean, the Fertile Crescent, what is now modern-day Iraq and Syria, and Lebanon and Israel and Palestine and Jordan, along with the northern region of Kuwait, southeastern regions of Turkey, the western portions of Iran, parts of India, Japan, China, and there were maybe 45 million people, all told? Well, that's less than the total population of California and New York today. Although I'm sure some people think that's all the people there are in the world. There are, in fact, a few more. The global population is now at about 8 billion people. That's 8,000 millions. So with more people using vastly more of the land to create more food, using more energy, and inventing new ways to do both have caused a small but radical change in the temperature of our tiny atmosphere. The source of this change is the burning of fossil materials. Fossil materials themselves are certainly ancient in their use. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Before the Industrial Revolutions over the past few hundred years, human societies used to trade in what's called bitumen, also called tar sands or oil sands, similar to heavy oil, but more dense, thicker, more sticky. The substance bitumen was found naturally in lakes and rocks. Records of its use go all the way back to the Old Testament, whose authorship by scholars dates around 400 to 600 BC, about 2,500 years ago. 
the Cyclopedia of Biblical Theology and Ecclesiastical Literature, edited by John McClintock and James Strong, has a terrific entry about bitumen in ancient texts. Quote, bitumen is doubtless denoted by the Hebrew term kemar, slime, and occurs in Genesis, and they give the chapters and books and so forth. They call it slime, so called from its boiling up as an earth resin from subterranean fountains not far from Babylon. Also anciently in the Vale of Siddim and occasionally from the bottom of the Dead Sea, which is thence called Lacus Asphaltites, the Lake of Bitumen. There are two or three kinds, but each have nearly the same component parts. It's usually of a blackish or brown hue and hardens more or less on exposure to the air. In its most fluid state, it forms naphtha. When of the consistence of oil, it becomes petroleum. At the next stage of induration, which means thickening, it becomes elastic bitumen, then malha, and so on, until it becomes a compact mass and is then called asphaltum. As these substances are remarkable for their inflammable character, the bituminous oils are of late extensively used for illumination and lubrication, and that naturally produced being commonly called petroleum, while that manufactured from this is termed kerosene. Neither the inventions of art nor the researches of science have discovered any other substance so well adapted to exclude water, to repel the injuries of worms as the mineral pitch or bitumen. According to Genesis 11.3, bitumen was used instead of lime or cement for the building of the Tower of Babel, end quote. In ancient times, bitumen was a valuable article of commerce and found a ready market in Egypt where it was used in large quantities for embalming the dead. It was also occasionally employed as a substitute for stone. The Egyptians, according to Pliny the Elder, a Roman author around 50 AD, made use of bitumen in making watertight the small boats of plaited papyrus reed which are commonly used on the Nile. The same is done at this day to the geyser or gopher boats of the Euphrates and the asphaltic coracles of the Tigris. Coracles are these little small round boats. And the little reed boat of which the mother of Moses exposed her child on the Nile was made tight with pitch of this kind. There is a terrific summary called The Complete History of Fossil Fuels written by a guy named Tom Cool which is pretty much the coolest name in the universe. So Tom Cool is the head of operations for oilprice.com. And he writes this, quote, oil was used for lighting. It was lit in a fire plant and later replaced by the wick oil lamp. The Romans used oil found in the Dacia province, which is now Romania, to burn as weapons to use in warfare. The Chinese found oil reservoirs and salt wells and drilled wells deep 100 feet to reach natural gas and oil in underground reservoirs at some point around 500 BC. A few hundred years later, the Chinese also built bamboo pipes to carry natural gas to homes for heating and lighting. Some cultures also used petroleum as skin, medicinal treatment in civilizations such as the ancient Persians, pre-Columbian Indians, and Sumatrans in the 10th century. They believed that crude oil had medicinal benefits. Native Americans used soft asphalt or hard asphalt melted in the sun to glue arrows to shafts and knives to handles. Early civilizations were puzzled by natural gas and before the understanding of what natural gas actually was. People attributed supernatural or religious origins to fires spontaneously occurring on the Earth's surface. 
when, for example, lightning struck and ignited natural gas that had seeped through the Earth's crust to the surface. The ancient Chinese civilizations and the Persians are thought to have used natural gas to heat homes. By the 19th century, natural gas was predominantly used for lighting and lamps, including street lamps. Coal, for its part, is much more widespread than oil and natural gas, which are concentrated in reservoirs in some places around the world. People have been using coal since the caveman and have been mining coal for more than a thousand years in China as well as the UK. Archaeological relics found in Britain suggest coal was used during the Roman rule on the British Isles in the second and third centuries. The Romans even took some coal back with them to Rome. In the 13th century, Marco Polo described the use of coal in China. In the 15th and 16th century in Europe, coal became an increasingly important fuel for heating of homes after the invention of chimneys made of fire bricks. But it wasn't until the Industrial Revolution in Britain, which began in the middle of the 18th century, the middle of the 1700s, that coal and later oil and natural gas became key energy sources. End quote on Tom Cool. The 1700s, like many other episodes in American origin stories, this is when it begins, the burning of more and more fossil fuels, producing carbon dioxide, which we call a greenhouse gas because it produces a greenhouse effect, trapping heat in the atmosphere for a very long time. Carbon dioxide is the main cause of human-induced climate change, and the changing of the climate at the pace it's currently accelerating. A lot of people don't want to call it climate change. They prefer the term climate crisis. The major contributors to the climate crisis are increased carbon dioxide, which come from fuel combustion activities, industrial processes, and natural gas processing. What is the biggest producer of carbon dioxide? Transportation. Transportation produced 27% of greenhouse gas emissions a couple of years ago. Primarily from where? From the burning of fossil fuel from our cars and trucks and ships and trains and planes. But of those various forms of transportation, it is passenger cars that are the biggest source of emissions. Again, a couple of years ago, 2020, accounting for 41% of global transportation emissions producing 7.3 billion metric tons of carbon dioxide. And cars also account for about 44% of total U.S. oil consumption. Cars are also very new in the history of humankind. By our limited knowledge that the slivers of fossil records afford us, we currently think human beings have been around for 300,000 years, give or take. Cars got here a couple hundred years ago and we terraformed the entire planet to accommodate them. According to fizz.org, the online science, research, and technology news aggregator, quote, roads introduce many problems to nature. They interrupt gene flow in animal populations. They facilitate the spread of pests and diseases. They increase oil erosion and the contamination of rivers and wetlands. Then there's the free movement of people made possible by road development in previously remote areas, which opens these areas up to problems like illegal logging, poaching, more deforestation. Most importantly, roads trigger the construction of more roads and the consequent 
conversion of a natural landscape, a phenomenon that that study calls contagious development. There's a Boston design company in there called Fathom, and they make maps, which are only paved roads. They include only roads. And you can look at these maps and you can see how we've parceled our entire continent in North America with concrete. Fast Company says the 4 million miles of paved roads have a, quote, noticeable impact on the environment from heat islands to floods to pollution runoffs to polluting nearby waterways. Now, it's actually enough space that some argue that roads could be converted to solar generators to power the entire country. That might be wishful thinking. The downsides are excruciatingly high. National Geographic tells us, quote, according to some estimates, automobile collisions kill more than a million animals a day, making them the leading cause of death for many species. Still worse is the way major roads and other forms of development can subdivide animal populations and fragment their habitats. Losing access to large areas of their living space makes it much harder for many woodland creatures to forage for food, find mates, and carry on their genetic legacies, end quote. Now, there are wildlife crossings. They're also called green bridges. They're one solution. The Netherlands has built the most, over 600 crossings, to protect badgers and elk and other animals. And this is, again, a small dent in a giant emissions-producing machine that is also one of the most dangerous products on the planet. There is no other consumer purchase that kills over a million people a year. There is no other product that is the leading cause of death of young people between the ages of 5 to 29 in the entire world. And there are about 50 million people injured every year in auto accidents. That's the entire population of South Korea or Argentina or Italy. The gas-driven passenger car is hands down the most dangerous product ever created on the planet. And yet, there are 1.5 billion cars in the world. Nearly 20% of them are here in the United States. We make up only 4% of the world's population. So unsurprisingly, the United States has contributed the most carbon dioxide to the atmosphere. China comes in second and now surpasses us in yearly contributions. But it's us, the United States, and the passenger car that's contributed the most overall. Besides transportation, there are other major contributors to carbon dioxide. There's natural gas for homes and factories and all kinds of transportation, and there's other greenhouse gases as well. The use of coal is also a huge factor, especially recently. The global energy-related carbon dioxide emissions of the planet, of the whole planet, rose by 6% in 2021 to their highest levels ever as the world economy was rebounding from the COVID-19 crisis. It was coal that powered that growth, but cars are still the number one, along with their primary energy source, oil. So what has all this carbon dioxide and all these greenhouse emissions done? It's very simple. The world is now about 1.1 degrees Celsius warmer than it was in the 1800s. That's about two degrees in Fahrenheit. And the amount of carbon dioxide in our atmosphere has risen by 50%. Now, we have an international body responsible for studying our climate. It's called the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, IPCC. That's the United Nations body that exists to assess the science related to climate change. It has 195 member countries. That's pretty much every country on the planet. And this is not some secretive independent body financed by dark money. This is an international organization of experts 
who volunteer their time as IPCC authors and assess thousands of scientific papers published every year to deliver a comprehensive, up-to-date summary of what is known about the climate crisis. It's open, it's transparent, it's reviewed by experts and governments everywhere. These are our world's climate scientists, and they are very clear that our atmosphere has been getting warm too quickly and that we need to cap this increase from the 1800s at 1.5 degrees Celsius or 2.7 degrees Fahrenheit. If it extends past that 1.5 Celsius mark, or about 2.7 degrees Fahrenheit, there will be consequences. Now, this is where people talking about the environment always get worried, that describing this stuff, it's too scary, it's too daunting. It makes us feel powerless, which is a terrible feeling. And to an extent, that feeling is accurate. Individual actions are not going to be enough to reverse the climate crisis. For a society, for a civilization, for a planetary species to change its energy sources, we're going to need a coordinated effort. We're going to need to collectively steer in a new direction. And to do that, we have to use our governments, the root word of which means to steer. However, what we can do individually is we can get educated on the topic, which we're doing now. And with that education, if we think what we're listening to is important, we can share it with our communities of friends and family, and we can make sure people are paying attention. But before we get into that and how to share it and what to share, briefly, we do need to understand the consequences of inaction for the purpose of empowering ourselves. So let's make that intention before we jump in. Rather than just allowing this to be overwhelming, what we're going to do is we're going to do some adulting. We're going to look into this area we'd rather not see. And we're going to take responsibility for knowing that we personally are interested in being part of that solution. And so after a brief Christmas with the ghost of Christmas future that we hope to avoid, we can dive into deeper understandings of the present. So Delger Erdenasana is a staff writer at the Texas Observer who covers climate change and the environment. Here's her summary, quote, In 2018, climate scientists convened by the United Nations published a report warning what's likely to happen beyond 1.5 degrees Celsius of warming. At 1.5 degrees Celsius, sea level is expected to rise 10 to 30 inches, putting millions of people at risk from coastal storms and flooding. Heat waves will continue to get worse, exposing 14% of the world population to extreme heat. She goes on, after 1.5 degrees Celsius of warming, up to 90% of all coral reefs could die out and about 7% of Earth's land area could shift into a new biome, with grasslands turning to desert, tundra turning to forest, etc. At 2 degrees Celsius, some of these climate impacts will become twice as bad as they would be at 1.5 degrees. But these numbers shouldn't be viewed as sudden cliffs. Every half degree matters, Penn State University climate scientist Michael Mann told Inside Climate News back in 2018, quote, a better analogy is a minefield. The further out onto that minefield we go, the more explosions we're likely to set off, end quote. After early heat waves across the Northern Hemisphere in the summer of 2021, some scientists think we are already setting off more explosions than expected. They warn that even 1.5 degrees Celsius may not be as safe, relatively speaking, as previously thought. 
and are urging communities to start preparing and adapting, end quote. There are so many scientists who are concerned we might blow past 1.5 degrees and even blow past 2 degrees. And if we don't do anything at all, that we could actually pass 4 degrees Celsius, which is over 7 degrees Fahrenheit. That would lead to devastating heat waves. Millions losing homes and neighborhoods to rising sea levels, the irreversible loss of plant and animal species, leading to mass extinction events. And it's not just the air we're now concerned about. Ocean heat, remember the majority of our planet's surface is water. It was at record levels in 2021. The rate of increase getting particularly high in the past 20 years. The Secretary General, of the World Meteorological Organization, Professor Pateri Talas says, quote, it's already too late for many glaciers. The melting will continue for hundreds, if not thousands of years with major implications for water security. The rate of sea level rise has doubled in the past 30 years. Although we still measure this in terms of millimeters per year, it adds up to half to one meter per century, and that is a long-term and major threat to millions of coastal dwellers and low-lying states. He's talking about people. All too often, those least responsible for climate change suffer the most, as we have just seen with the terrible flooding in Pakistan and deadly long-running drought in the Horn of Africa. But even well-prepared societies this year have been ravaged by extremes, as seen by the protracted heat waves and drought in large parts of Europe and southern China. End quote. So now let's visit with the ghost of Christmas present. The extreme climate catastrophes that we've just witnessed. This also from the World Meteorological Association. Quote, in East Africa, rainfall has been below average in four consecutive wet seasons, the longest in 40 years with indications that the current season could also be dry as a result of the persistent drought and other compounding factors. An estimated 18.4 to 19.3 million people faced food crises or worse levels of acute food security. Humanitarian agencies are warning that another below average season will likely result in crop failure and exacerbate food insecurity situations in Kenya, Somalia, and Ethiopia. Record-breaking rain in July and August led to flooding in Pakistan. There were at least 1,700 deaths and 33 million people affected. 7.9 million people were displaced from their homes. The flooding came hard on the heels of an extreme heat wave in March and April in India and Pakistan. Southern Africa region was just battered by a series of cyclones over two months at the start of the year hitting Madagascar hardest with torrential rain and devastating floods. Hurricane Ian just caused extensive damage and loss of life in Cuba and southwest Florida in September. Large parts of the northern hemisphere were exceptionally hot and dry. China had the most extensive and long-lasting heat wave since national records began, and the second driest summer on record. The Yangtze River at Wuhan reached its lowest recorded level for August. Large parts of Europe sweltered in repeated episodes of extreme heat. The United Kingdom saw a new national record on the 19th of July when the temperature topped more than 40 degrees Celsius, 104 degrees Fahrenheit, for the very first time. This was accompanied by a persistent and damaging drought 
and wildfires. European rivers, the Rhine, the Loire, the Danube, fell to critically low levels, end quote. So now, sorry to put us all through that, although doing so in our minds is a lot easier than actually going through it physically. So now we have the context required to understand exactly what Greta Thunberg was talking about in her now famous speech in 2019 when she addressed the UN's Climate Action Summit in New York. The 16-year-old said to remind us, quote, For more than 30 years, the science has been crystal clear. How dare you continue to look away and come here saying that you're doing enough? When the politics and the solutions needed are still nowhere in sight, you say you hear us and that you understand the urgency. But no matter how sad and angry I am, I don't want to believe that. Because if you really understood the situation and still kept on failing to act, then you would be evil. And that I refuse to believe. The popular idea of cutting our emissions in half in 10 years only gives us a 50% chance of staying below 1.5 degrees. And the risk of setting off irreversible chain reactions beyond human control, 50% may be acceptable to you, but those numbers do not include tipping points, most feedback loops, additional warming hidden by toxic air pollution, or any of the aspects of equity and climate justice. They also rely on my generation sucking hundreds of billions of tons of your CO2 out of the air with technologies that barely exist. So she's referring now to the idea that we're on the cusp of inventing technologies that will hopefully remove carbon dioxide, a fantasy solution that exists perhaps at the end of some Marvel movie. She says, quote, so a 50% risk is simply not acceptable to us. We who have to live with the consequences to have a 67% chance of staying below a 1.5 degrees global temperature rise, the best odds given by the IPCC. The world had 420 gigatons of CO2 left to emit back on January 1st of 2018. Today, that figure is already down to less than 350 gigatons. How dare you pretend that this can be solved with just business as usual and some technical solutions? With today's emission levels, that remaining CO2 budget, it's going to be entirely gone in less than eight and a half years. There will not be any solutions or plans presented in line with those figures here today because those numbers are too uncomfortable. And you are still not mature enough to tell it like it is. You're failing us. But the young people are starting to understand your betrayal. The eyes of all future generations are upon you. And if you choose to fail us, I say we will never forgive you. We will not let you get away with this. Right here, right now is where we draw the line. The world is waking up and change is coming, whether you like it or not. End quote. These are hard truths. The reality is that unless the planet makes radical changes to the major energy sources that we created in the last 200 years, we are going to make our atmosphere uninhabitable for our food supply, which consists of plants and animals, and will also make it uninhabitable for ourselves. The IPCC, the international body examining all our climate science, is now saying the risk of global societal collapse or even human extinction has been dangerously unexplored. Dr. Luke Kemp at the University of Cambridge's Center for the Study of Existential Risk, who led the analysis, said there are plenty of reasons to believe climate change could become catastrophic, even at modest levels of warming. Climate change has played a role in every mass extinction event. It's helped fell empires and shaped history. Paths to disaster are not limited to the direct impacts of high temperatures, such as extreme weather events. 
knock-on effects such as financial crises, conflict, new disease outbreaks could trigger other calamities. End quote. With this level of expert scientific concern, hugely popular viral speeches from compelling advocates, it is astonishing that Americans in large enough numbers don't seem to believe it, that our political class is dragging its feet. Some people oppose any political action at all to even curb it. There's some support going in the opposite direction. You know, there's some Wyoming senators that even tried to ban electric cars and phase them out by 2035, claiming oil and gas are more environmentally sound due to the minerals used in creating car batteries. Now look, as we've discussed, the facts are not in favor of cars, period. But electric vehicles are always going to be safer for the atmosphere than fossil fuel cars because they don't create emissions. And over the lifetime of a car, the battery production of an electric car produces less carbon dioxide, and battery technology is rapidly advancing every year. However, replacing every fossil fuel car with an electric one isn't an answer either, not for traffic, not for safety, not for efficiency, and not for saving our environment. Most scholars and scientists agree that rethinking city planning, prioritizing walkability, and investments in mass transportation are clearly the best route, not just for a habitable atmosphere, but the aesthetics of our civilization and our quality of life. So why is it, though, that there's so much confusion and opposition to going green? I mean, even just aesthetically, wouldn't it be so much better to not pave over our entire planet with concrete? The confusion and outright deception is not by accident. Three academics from Harvard and the University of Potsdam in Germany just published evidence that ExxonMobil predicted global warming with incredible accuracy beginning in the late 1970s. Exxon acknowledged human-caused climate change internally and denied it in public. In 1981, an Exxon employee named Marty Hofert created a model predicting the effects of man-made climate change, shared it with the company, they claimed their findings didn't match his, even when other scientists backed Hofert's claims. Exxon didn't budge. A statement by Lee Raymond, an Exxon executive, summed up their stance, quote, the scientific evidence is inconclusive as to whether human activities are having a significant effect on the global climate, end quote. In the years that followed, the major players in oil production, ExxonMobil, Shell, Chevron, all refused to claim any responsibility for the disastrous effects of fossil fuels. Even when it entered the public's eye, when heat waves across America continued to increase annually, instead they chose to emphasize the uncertainty. With ads like, Doomsday is canceled again. <laughs> Who told you the earth was warming? Chicken Little? And, quote, if the earth is getting warmer, why is Kentucky getting colder? Undermining scientists. According to Niall McCarthy, writing for Forbes, quote, every year the world's largest publicly owned oil and gas companies spend $200 million on lobbying designed to control, delay, or block binding climate-motivated policy. BP has the highest annual expenditure in climate lobbying at $53 million, followed by Shell with $49 million, and ExxonMobil with $41 million. Chevron spends $29 million every year. InfluenceMap states that part of the lobby spend goes towards sophisticated efforts to engage politicians and the general public on environmental policies that would impact fossil fuel usage. 
And The Guardian calculates the total numbers way higher, charting, quote, over roughly the last three decades. Five major U.S. oil companies have spent a total of at least $3.6 billion on advertisements, not counting their investments in public relations programs like sponsored beach cleanups or their influence through trade associations, dark money groups, and campaign donations. And that investigative reporting has already shown that Exxon has known since at least the 1960s that its products were causing global warming. Robert Bruhl, a visiting professor of environmental sociology at Brown University, who co-authored the research tallying oil spending on ads, says the findings are just the tip of the iceberg and that lawmakers should investigate the oil industry the way Congress took on tobacco companies in the 90s and says, quote, I think what we'll find is that the fossil fuel campaigns are going to dwarf what the tobacco industry did. It's an order of magnitude larger. So let's end with some advice from Dr. Catherine Hayhoe. She's an award-winning climate scientist, a professor of public policy and law at Texas Tech University, and she's an evangelical Christian. And she says, quote, The fact that the number one predictor of whether we agree that climate is changing, humans are responsible, and the impacts are increasingly serious and even dangerous, has nothing to do with how much we know about science or how smart we are, but simply where we fall on the political spectrum. But the reality is that more than 70% of people in the U.S. are already worried about climate change. And about 35% of those are very worried. So the biggest problem is not the people who aren't on board. The biggest problem is the people who don't know what to do. And if we don't know what to do, we do nothing. So just start by doing something, anything, and then talk about it. Talk about how it matters to your family, your home, your city, the activity that you love. We don't need to be talking more about science. We've been talking about the science for over 150 years, since the 1850s when climate scientists first discovered that digging up and burning coal and gas and oil is producing heat-trapping gases that is wrapping an extra blanket around the planet. That's how long we've known. It's been 50 years since scientists first formally warned a U.S. president of the dangers of a changing climate. That president was Lyndon B. Johnson. And what's more, the social science has taught us that if people have built their identity on rejecting a certain set of facts— Arguing over those facts is a personal attack. It causes them to dig in deeper, and it digs a trench rather than building a bridge. So if we aren't supposed to talk about more science, or if we don't need to talk about more science, what should we be talking about? The most important thing to do is, instead of starting up with your head, with all the data and facts in our head, start talking about why it matters to us. Begin with genuinely shared values. Are we both parents? Do we live in the same community? Do we enjoy the same outdoor activities, hiking, biking, fishing, even hunting? Do we care about the economy or national security? For me, one of the most foundational ways I've found to connect with people is through my faith. Because 80% of the world identifies with a religion, having a faith-based argument is not going to hurt, Dr. Hayhoe says. As a Christian, I believe God created this incredible planet that we live on and gave us responsibility over every living thing on it. And I furthermore believe that we are to care for and love the least fortunate among us who are already suffering the impacts of poverty, hunger, disease, and more. If you don't know what the values are that someone has, have a conversation, get to know them, figure out what makes them tick, 
And then once we have, all we have to do is connect the dots between the values they already have and why they would care about a changing climate. I truly believe after thousands of conversations I've had over the past decade and more that just about every single person in the world already has the values they need to care about a changing climate. They just haven't connected the dots. And that's what we can do through our conversation with them. The world is changing, but it just isn't changing fast enough. Too often we picture this problem as a giant boulder sitting at the bottom of a hill with only a few hands on it, trying to roll it up the hill, but in reality, that boulder is already at the top. And it's got hundreds of millions of hands, maybe even billions on it, pushing it down. It just isn't going fast enough. So how do we speed up that giant boulder so we can fix climate change in time? The number one way is by talking about it. Climate change is already affecting you and me right here, right now, in the places where we live. But by working together, we can fix it. Sure, it's a daunting problem. Nobody knows that more than us climate scientists. But we can't give in to despair. We have to go out and actively look for the hope that we need that will inspire us to act. And that hope begins with a conversation today. Imagine it's a chill night on a desert plain. You're huddled near a bonfire for warmth. Above you looms an endless starry sky and all around you lies a sea of land. In this void, over the crackles of the flame, we ask, could we interest you in a spot of fireside storytelling? Introducing Temujin, a Webby-nominated adaptation of Central Asian folklore, performed by an all-Asian cast, perfect for fans of The Prince of Egypt or Amadeus. The show is an intimate epic that charts the rise of Genghis Khan, as told from the perspective of his childhood friend turned mortal enemy. All five episodes of Temujin are out now, so be sure to listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, or learn more at realm.fm.